Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Throughout its history, America has been defined through maps, whether made for military strategy or urban reform to encourage settlement or to investigate disease. Maps invest information with meaning by translating it into visual form. They capture what people knew, what they thought they knew, what they hoped for, and what they feared. As such, they offer unrivaled windows into the past. There's a new book out, A History of Maps in uh, a History of America, rather, in 100 Maps. The author is Susan Scholten, professor of history at the University of Denver. She's author of Mapping the Nation, a previous book, and The Geographical Imagination in America, both uh, published also by University of Chicago Press. Susan Scholten, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, uh, professor of history, I think you were not always into uh, maps. What, uh, what, what got you into uh, to studying maps and the reflection of history? Well, um, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of history. I was trained as a historian. And pretty early on in my career, I began to be interested in the way Americans were taught to see the world, particularly as the nation became an international power uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And maps became, for me, um, unrivaled ways to get into uh, understanding uh, through, say, National Geographic or Rand McNally, how the world was presented to Americans at various points in their past. That was my early interest. And from there, um, the second book that you mentioned, Mapping the Nation, was a way for me to understand how mapping itself transformed um, in the modern era, particularly as we move from maps of places or navigation to maps of information, which we're so familiar with today, say maps of um, the census or of weather. All of those are rooted in the 19th century. Um, this latest book was my way to showcase for a wider audience what maps can do to enrich our understanding of the past. And before we get too far here, I, I want to alert our audience. Uh, since we're talking about a visual medium, of course, maps, uh, there's a very helpful website, America100Maps.com, and you can see many of the maps we'll be talking about uh, on the program today. You can actually have them up in front of you. America, the numeral 100 maps, America100Maps.com. Uh, is there a particular map that uh, really affected you early on as you were getting into this field? Uh, absolutely. I would say um, the one that really captivated me and, and began to help me think more deeply about maps as ways of organizing information and determining decision-making was one I came across about 10 years ago, and that is, it's in the book, um, it's uh, Midpoint, um, which is the American Civil War, and it was a map that organized the density of slavery on the eve of the American Civil War. The reason it's so important to me is not just that it was pathbreaking in terms of mapping. It was the first map of census data in the United States and one of the first maps of slavery. But what really um, made it consequential for me was the way that it caught the public's imagination as well as Abraham Lincoln's and became a way for him to understand the incredible diversity of the Confederacy as the war began. That is to say, certain parts of the South were far more devoted and committed to slavery than others, and that became a way for him to understand strategy. That map really opened my eyes that maps, in terms of organizing information, could be instruments of power and could determine and frame the way we see the world. Is this the map that ended up in a portrait of Lincoln? That's correct, and that's that's my small contribution to uh, Lincoln literature. I was studying that map intensely uh, many years ago and also organizing a course on Lincoln. And for my students, I was searching for visual uh, images of Lincoln over time. And that one, of course, the portrait by Francis Carpenter that now hangs in the Senate is um, is ubiquitous. We see it um, reproduced in all kinds of places. But no one had noticed, um, because the map of slavery was not well known, that in the corner of the portrait is um, that map. And that's because the portrait artist noticed Lincoln poring over the map when he was studying and creating that portrait. And so he made uh, a great deal of um, effort to reproduce the map in the painting, given that it was something that Lincoln himself was preoccupied by. So you're saying this map of slavery is not well known in our time, certainly well known to Lincoln and, and others? 
That's correct. And it's not to say that it was unknown, but it it had been understood as a map, but no one had made the connection that it was somewhat something that was distributed in the cabinet and particularly captured Lincoln's imagination as he thought about where the Confederacy might be weakest. Uh, And so the lighter spaces on the map, which there are many, uh, in the Upper South, in the Appalachian areas, of course, and in areas of the West like Missouri, Lincoln understood to be places where he could exploit the weakness of slavery and really try to um, have the Confederacy overturned from within. Now, he's incorrect about that, right? He holds on very long to this idea that the Confederacy is a is a minority of the South. Um, but the important point to me is the way that the map helped him understand um, that slavery was not ubiquitous or or homogenous throughout the South, but really had everything to do with geography. Hmm. Uh, do you, I don't know if we know much about Lincoln's thinking process and how this map might have affected him. It, he apparently had it with him a lot and, and studied it a lot. In terms of uh, how his views evolved uh, into this, you know, this, this war is not only about union, but it's about slavery. Yes, um, the map comes to Lincoln's attention um, that we know about probably at the midpoint of the war. And the reason we know about it is that the portrait artist had taken up residence in the White House at Lincoln's invitation. So that part is fairly clear to us. But you hit on something that is deeper, and that is, to what degree did Lincoln's understanding of slavery as the key to the Confederacy evolve? At the outset of the war in his inaugural, Lincoln is very clear Uh, in the midst of the secession crisis, that he does not have the power to emancipate slaves, to attack slavery, nor does he intend to. But he does make very clear that his platform and the platform of the Republican Party does not support the extension of slavery into the West, particularly the Western territories. Over time, Lincoln sees that to attack the Confederacy is contingent on attacking slavery, the Confederacy's greatest resource. And like I said, that takes time. Lincoln, in some ways, is playing catch-up, right, with some of his generals and also abolitionists who had been urging him to move more swiftly against slavery. Um, But that's something that, uh, in his own mind, must actually come when the power he has under the Constitution develops for him to attack slavery. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I've been reading a biography of uh... Uh, David Herbert Donald's great biography of Lincoln. Um, oh, it's a wonderful one. I think it's one of the best. Really is. Uh, he he focuses on you know what would Lincoln have known, what would he have thought, um, and the perception in the South was Lincoln's a total abolitionist, right? He's he's the death of the of the of the South, but Lincoln came along a lot more gradually than I think we remember. I think that's absolutely right. He he makes clear uh, that he had always been against slavery, morally, personally. He also, remember, he's a lawyer, and he's very careful and clear about what he believes the Constitution um, gives him the right to do as president. And he understands, and he's sort of horrified by the idea that the Constitution may actually protect slavery. For him, and I think for America generally, the key contribution Lincoln makes to our understanding of what this country is about is a few years before the war, when the prospect of slavery extending into the interior, right, places like Utah, but more importantly, Kansas and Nebraska, when that develops in the 1850s, he goes back to the drawing board, he goes back to the framers, and he studies them intensely, and he comes to the conclusion that the founders always intended slavery to die, that they did not expect it to continue to expand. And he looks at the Northwest Ordinance, which banned slavery in what we now know as the Midwest. He looks at the way they uh, circumscribed the slave trade uh, and, and planned for it to end in the early 19th century. And so he says the only way to understand this country's constitution is that it's animated by a moral purpose in the Declaration. And David Donald explores this beautifully. And so for Lincoln, the constitution may be the framework but it's the Declaration that gives that framework meaning. And for him, all men are created equal must be taken more literally than people had taken it in the past. Uh, 
If you just joined us, we're talking about an interesting book, A History of America in 100 Maps. The author is Susan Scholten. Uh, she's a professor of history at the University of Denver. We have her for the hour. You can participate in this program. Hope that you will. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, 800-826-1495. Or email us, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And uh, we're pointing you to a website, very helpful website, America100maps.com. America, the numeral 100 maps.com. Many of the maps uh, you can see right there. Um, I want to, before we leave Civil War, I want to talk about uh, this is a map that uh, you have in the book and you highlight in your prologue, uh, a map that uh, General Sherman used in his march through Georgia. Tell us about this. This is very interesting. Oh, that's a wonderful map, and uh, it it is archived um, in the National Archives, actually, um, where many of the nation's official records end up. Uh, What you see here is a map that originally was produced as part of a postal atlas in 1839, a large oversized atlas, if you can imagine that, for the post office. Um, That is to say, it focuses on roads and routes uh, and railroads. Now, um, a few decades later, once the war begins, the head of the, of the Census Bureau, Joseph Kennedy, was keen on using the census data to help inform strategy in the American Civil War. So what you're looking at is the updated or annotated edition of that map. And what Kennedy's clerks have done is to elaborate the map so it doesn't just represent roads, But now what they've done is to highlight county divisions and within those counties to list different types of information that is not just population data, whites, free coloreds, slaves, and then crucially, he's highlighted in a red M, men of military age between 18 and 45. And then below that, their mother load, acres of improved land, horses and mules, cattle, swine, and then foodstuffs, wheat, corn, hay, and cotton as well, the lifeblood of the Deep South. What Joseph Kennedy and the Census Bureau was doing was trying to organize census data for strategy. And this map ended up being useful for General Sherman, not as he marched through Georgia per se, but as he said, the way he conceived of that operation in the first place. And the reason that's important is that when Grant assigned Sherman to invade the heart of the South in this operation. It involves Sherman conceiving of cutting loose from his chain of supply and doing so in a deep way, not in a minor or limited way. And so what the map's information is doing for Sherman is to help him think about how he and his men might both live off the land, but also how they might destroy and subjugate the enemy. This map is controversial, and when I do speak about it, I can tell that some of these issues are still very live, right? I mean, Sherman's um, devastating march through Georgia is remembered differently depending on where you live in this country or perhaps where you're raised. My point is that if you think about the map as something that enabled him to organize and conceptualize the operation in the first place, you can understand its power, and that is the power to visually organize information. Yeah, you uh, continue throughout the book. You uh, you highlight uh, your point that, that uh, maps matter, right? And that uh, history is not just uh, chronological, but a spatial story as well. That's right. And it's certainly not to say that Sherman would have used this map on the ground. As I've learned from military historians, he would have been guided much more immediately by other types of routes. But it is to say that information, particularly when it's presented in visual, as you put it, spatial form, has tremendous power that we haven't yet completely uh, wrapped our heads around. And my, the point of this book is to help us begin the conversation of how we might think of maps as on the same level of historical documents as, for instance, speeches, right, or state papers or diaries, that they have that level of power of recapturing a moment in time and giving it, like you said, not just a chronological framework, but a spatial one as well. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, try to to fit in as many maps as we can here in our discussion. Uh, And we'll uh, send you to the website, America100maps.com, and then click on Book Preview. And there's some 16 uh, maps there that you can look at. We'll be talking about some of those as we go along. Uh, We'll get into um, the world before Columbus when we uh, come back. It's, you know, maps uh, capture, as you say, Susan Schulten, what people knew, what they thought they knew, what they hoped for, what they feared. I guess what they didn't know is, is... we know now, and they didn't know then. Uh, I also want to talk about the famous map, the gerrymander uh, map that we refer <laughs> yeah, that's to. Favorite. <laughs> um, and I, I was interested in this red states, blue states, the 1880 presidential election, and the, the <laughs> colors are reversed. So we're going to do some of those uh, historical maps when we come back. And just a quick note, if you have a comment on this program, please email us at upraccess at gmail.com. Rather than giving us a call, this program was first broadcast in 2018. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Explore Logan, Utah. Family fun October 14th through the 16th at the Fall Harvest Festival at the American West Heritage Center. Plus the Pumpkin Walk, Gardener's Market, and Haunted Downtown Ghost Tours. UPR's The Moth Storytelling Live is October 21st. Details at explorelogan.com. And support comes from the Flower Shop in Logan, offering floral and planter creations for life celebrations and special occasions. Located at 202 South Main in Logan. Information available at loganflowershop.com or at 435-752-1776. Please tune in on Sundays at noon for Utah Public Radio's new show, Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels. The show will air every Sunday right before the Splendid Table, and in each segment we will explore food and its historical context along with recipes, personal stories, and interviews about our relationship to food today. Your hosts will be Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, and Tammy Proctor, all from the Department of History at Utah State University. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. Thanks for uh, tuning in to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new book, A History of America in 100 Maps. The author is Susan Schulten. She's professor of history at University of Denver. And we're pointing you to a website, a companion website, America 100 Maps, America the numeral 100 maps.com. Click on book preview. And you can see many of the maps, including the one I want to talk about right now, which is titled The World Before Columbus. Susan Schulten, as you write, we famously know, uh, 1492, uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, but what he thought he uh, had discovered, I think to the end of his life, he thought he discovered the East Indies, not the West Indies. That's correct. Uh, so the map um, is an absolute treasure of the British Library, and it's, um, it's captivating. It's part of an atlas. Uh, and what Martellus um, shows us here is both the world that was understood by Europeans at that point for several hundred years. This is actually based on a classical uh, map by Ptolemy. But at the same time, if you take a look at Africa and you see all those details along the western coast, all the way down to the Cape, that was absolutely up-to-the-minute information that had just come back to Europe from the, uh, the um, voyage of Bartolome Diaz. And so what Martellus shows us here is the world as Europeans understood it right on the eve of Columbus's voyage. Now, as you write, or as you just mentioned, the goal for European voyagers at that time was to make it to the Orient, as they put it, to Asia uh, for trade purposes. And Diaz came back having rounded the Cape, not having gone all the way to the East Indies, but having rounded the Cape and coming back, that suggested that that was the best way to go. Columbus believed, based on a map like this, which influences a very powerful globe at the time, that it would be more efficient and he'd have a better chance of survival by sailing west directly from Europe. And, of course, his calculations were wrong. He underestimated the size of the ocean tremendously and the distance. At the same time, once he makes landfall in what is named Hispaniola, he believes, and like you said, continues to believe to his death that he has actually reached Asia. And if you, you know, if you look at the maps extant at the time, right, um, you would be led to believe that the ocean is much smaller and that you would, uh, by traveling west, it wouldn't take that much to, to reach uh, Asia. That's right. 
yes, so the miscalculation was um, certainly reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that there's such a difference of expectation among geographers and cosmographers, as they were called, and voyagers about how long that distance was. What I love about it is that, in a way, it's the error of the map that leads to Columbus's erroneous thinking, which leads to the European discovery, if you will, to an entirely new hemisphere. So it's it's errors upon errors, but those errors, of course, um, matter. The other thing that seems to me really powerful about this map is that it is the up-to-date information and view of the world at that time, but within two years, of course, it will be rendered completely irrelevant by the transformative discovery, which takes some time, by the way, that there is not just the eastern edge of Asia, but before that, right to the west, there is an entirely new landmass. It takes European explorers several years to really wrap their heads around the fact that what they're finding there is a new region, not the region they thought that it was. Mm. And your description there, error upon error, and then, uh, you know, correct view, uh, finally, that's uh, that's history in a nutshell, isn't it? The other thing that it does, that maps do, and you write about this, is it, it can counteract our view looking back of inevitability. Right? The, that's these... one of, yeah, for me, that's the real sweet spot of um, not just maps, but all kinds of historical sources, but they remind us of... Uh, what historians call contingency. Things might have worked out differently, and that moments matter, that the history of the world is not just a series of inevitable forces, right, but individual decision-making. That, to me, is exciting, not just as a historian, but it it creates tremendous excitement for students um, to understand that decisions matter. Um, Maps can help us recapture that because, as we talked about earlier, by capturing the state of knowledge at a particular time, it really takes you back to a particular moment. Um, for me, the real story of the first chapter is that contingency, right? Now, of course, the Western Hemisphere was there. Europeans may have, quote-unquote, discovered it for themselves, but we don't want to suggest that, um, you know, nothing existed there before. But the intellectual confusion and the geographical confusion that emerges from that discovery is really rich. So over the course of the first chapter, you see maps that are very confusing to our own eyes, right? Because people at the time themselves were grappling with what exactly is the shape of this new land. Um, I want to, I think a lot of us are vaguely aware, the general outlines of how America came to be named America, that has to do with maps, what if you could tell us it the does. story story in brief? <laughs> right. And this is a map that um, made quite a splash a few years ago when it was acquired by the Library of Congress. In 2003, the Library of Congress bought the what's called the Waldseemuller map, um, and it's uh, in the first chapter on page 16 through 19. The Library of Congress paid $10 million for that map. And the reason is not just because it's an important and large map, and it gives us the state of information at that time. But if you look very carefully at the far lower edge of that map, across what is we understand to be, of course, South America now, is for the first time the word America attached to the terrestrial manifestation of the Western Hemisphere. And that had to do with uh, Martin Waldseemuller, the author of the map, sort of paying homage, if you will, to uh, Amerigo Vespucci, the um, voyager who's a contemporary of Columbus. And if you look at the broad, entire reproduction of the map, on the left you have Ptolemy, the classical geographer whom I mentioned, who's um, the basis of the uh, first map in the book. And on the right, the counterpart to Ptolemy is Amerigo Vespucci. Um, Now, over time, Waldi Mueller's admiration for Amerigo Vespucci cooled. And on a subsequent map, he actually takes off the name America. But by then, the name had stuck. So it's sort of an accidental or perhaps inadvertent naming of America. (laughs) Um, But of course, it's what is inherited for for our own understanding of of geography. That's interesting. His admiration cooled, but by then it was uh, the cat's out of the bag. That's right. (laughs) Interesting. 
If you just joined us, we're talking about a book called A History of America in 100 Maps. The author is Susan Schulten. She's professor of history at the University of Denver, and she's with us for the hour. And uh, you can view many of the maps we're talking about at the website america100maps.com. I want to talk about the maps as, I guess you could call this propaganda or advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's uh, this, uh, this chapter, this map's called The Invention of New England. Uh, so John Smith of Virginia fame, who who had mixed success there, I didn't know this. Uh, I guess went back and further expeditions to north of there, right? And That's right. He's actually on a, a whaling voyage off the coast of um, uh, what we would now call New England um, or North America uh, in about 1615 or so, um, and John Smith is an entrepreneur through and through. And as you said, mixed success in Virginia as such. Um, and in fact, he had been somewhat making an effort to distance himself from that colony, given the the um, kind of uh, mixed success uh, of Virginia before it hits on the success of tobacco. And on that voyage, he comes back and then develops this map of the coast and names it New England, partly as a way to sell this geography and sell land, right, as that colony was just beginning to be developed. To me, the naming is important. If you look at that map, he suggested a busy, bustling coastline. You see ships in the harbor. And the names all up and down the coast are English names. But of course, there are no Englishmen or English women there at the time. And to me, that's incredibly powerful as the way Smith was able to frame this geography and this eventual uh, English colony as an extension of home, of England itself, to perhaps make it more familiar. Uh, It's accompanied by a pamphlet that suggests that this is a sure bet, right, that there's an inevitable level of agricultural success that one would have if they take up land claims there, which is not true at all, right? This is forbidding country for a long time. And of course, there are Native Americans there, and those will, um, many of those tribes will push back, uh, eventually exploding in the, um, in the King Philip's War that I also document later in that century. Um, so even at its birth, if you will, the English colony uh, north of Virginia was deeply intertwined with advertising, as, as you very nicely put it. I want to be... Uh not neglect this. This is a, a, a fascinating map, and this is you can find at uh, America100Maps.com. An indigenous view of the deerskin trade. Um, mm-hmm. At first glance, you're right, it looks uh, like a confusing organizational chart. This is, a, <laughs> this is a very interesting map. What's going on here? Oh, this one is, is, um, is very dear to me, and partly because it's wrapped in a little bit of mystery. Um, we don't know the date, as you said. I guess the date in, um, based on uh, what researchers have done, about 1720, 1721. And what you're looking at here is a series of circles on a deerskin. Uh, the map's origin has to do with the incredible chaos and violence going on in the southeast uh, in the 17-teens, where the Yamasee War had recently ended. And that war was largely between the tribes of the American Southeast and the new colony of South Carolina. Now, the upshot of that, which is crucial to understand, is that it devastated the deerskin trade, which was the main source of commerce uh, for those tribes and for the new colony of South Carolina. And in fact, South Carolina is so fragile during that war that it's only an 11th hour alliance between the Cherokee and South Carolina that saves the South Carolina colony. Now, The crown, the British crown, appoints a new governor and sends him with a mission to reach out to those tribes and to restore the deerskin trade. But also what they're hoping for is to build up that new port of Charleston, which you see in lower, the lower left corner of the deerskin map. They want to build up the the port of Charleston and perhaps overtake the ports of Virginia to the north, the older and more successful colony. But they also need a restored and buttressed alliance with those southeastern Native American tribes because the French are encroaching from the Mississippi River to the east. This is an era of tremendous imperial rivalry between the French and the English. I tell you all this because 
one of the things that's really crucial to me is that this map restores a level of power and fluidity um, to the Native American tribes that we don't always think about. We think of American settlers, your English and then American settlers, as sort of a juggernaut that eventually wipes Natives to the West and then onto reservations in a very tragic story. But in the early years, of course, Native Americans were potential allies and sources of power and formidable enemies. So what you see on this map is a series of circles of various sizes. And the best research that's been done on this suggests that the size of those circles indicates the relative power of that particular band or tribe. We think that the map was made to give to the governor when he met with those tribes. And if you look at the Cherokee, which is one of the large circles in the upper right, that indicates that probably the author was a Cherokee leader who presented the map as a tool of diplomacy to the governor of South Carolina, suggesting that path that goes from the Cherokee circle straight over to Charleston is actually a proposal for an exclusive deerskin trade arrangement that would benefit the Cherokee at the expense of the other tribes and correspondingly benefit Charleston at the expense of Virginia. So it's a a map that is also a tool of trade and diplomacy. And that, to me, gives it a real um, power, right? And something else that it does is in a book that is by and large maps authored by European Americans, this one helps disrupt that and show us a radically different way of understanding space and power. I want to uh, move to the West. This is around uh, the, well, in fact, July 1776. And I think many uh, here in the West are familiar with the uh, Dominguez and Escalante uh, expedition. So Declaration of Independence in the East and uh, Dominguez and Escalante are making their way through Utah and some other states uh, in 1776. This is a fascinating map uh, titled, uh, you title it, Spanish Geographical Intelligence in the Southwest. Uh, Dominguez and Escalante uh, had a definite purpose, right, or purposes. Um, it, it's it's interesting, speaking of the Native Americans, uh, I think they would absolutely have failed. Maybe everybody died, but for their Ute guides. That's right. And I knew, I, well, at least I was hoping that um, you and your audience would have an interest in this particular one. This map is unique to the British Library, so it was one that I absolutely knew when I started this project that I wanted to reproduce. What it is, as you mentioned, is uh, the route of the Dominguez and Escalante expedition, which is the furthest and most ambitious Spanish geographical expedition in that region to that point. You mentioned that it failed. That is to say they turned back without reaching their goal, which was to find a waterway or a passageway from this region to the missions on the Pacific coast, the Spanish missions. So they failed in that. But along the way, they brought back tremendous information about the complex geography that you and I share as, uh, in Utah and uh, southern Colorado, northern New Mexico, that region. Um, and the map is a cross between a traditional topographical map, which is to say it shows us watersheds, it shows us mountain ranges, but also kind of an oblique view. So we see some pictorial representations right in the middle left of Native American tribes, which had been fabled, uh, there had been fabled blonde hair uh, Native tribes that, that they may or may not encounter. As you mentioned, were it not for the help of some Ute guides, the expedition might have perished altogether, uh, not just failed in its expedition, but not survived. So the map gives us all kinds of um, geographical, but also historical information about that moment. I absolutely love the elaborate representation of the church and the pope in the upper right, a reminder, of course, of the um, the power of the um, Catholic Church, particularly um, in Spain and in the American Southwest to that point. This is a, a clear statement um, of, uh, or an assertion of Catholic power against British Protestant um, identity further to the East. And as you opened in your comment, what I particularly admire about this map is that for Americans, the way at least my generation and older generations were taught about our history, it's generally a march from the Atlantic coast west. And 1776 is enshrined in our memory 
for one reason only, and that is the Declaration of Independence and the launching of emancipation from the British crown. At that very moment, this other radically different kind of imperial project is going on in the American Southwest, and that is the ambitious attempt of the Spanish to reach north right, um, from their capital much further south and then from Santa Fe to extend their colony to the north and ultimately connect it with their missions along the Pacific coast. Before we go to break, I want to reference this before the previous break. I want to get this in. Uh, The famous gerrymander. You have uh, this from the Salem Gazette. This is a very famous map. (laughs) Um, The gerrymander and uh, subtitled Essex South District formed into a monster exclamation point uh so the the the, the two parts of that word um mander right that's salamander i'm guessing right because it it's it looks like a salamander this district uh jerry or gary from the governor i guess or or a legislator that's right um Gary, who had been a signer of the Declaration of Independence and vice president under James Madison, um, and at the time, the governor of uh, Massachusetts, he's pilloried here, not just for his acquiescence in the redistricting that allowed uh, the Republicans to prevail over the Federalists, but he's also pilloried personally. That is to say, if you turn the map at a certain angle, you can see that it's um, a caricature of his facial features, right? So um, this is par for the course in terms of um, the kind of things that newspapers engaged in. We think that we live in an era of tremendous partisanship, but there's a long history of that, particularly in the earliest days of the American Republic, when parties really went after one another. Um, And this, I like the way this recaptures that partisanship, right, that sort of the fight to the death attitude between the Federalists and the Republicans, in this case, in Massachusetts. but it also, of course, is a term and a problem that we continue to reckon with. In fact, I've got a second map of, of um, now North Carolina's gerrymandered, most gerrymandered district because it's back in the courts even as we speak. Yeah, I've turned to this. I was going to highlight that as well. This, <laughs> you know, the, these maps look very similar to the, the one in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, you could call it a salamander, uh, not, not blocks, contiguous blocks. Right, and it's um, it was known. Uh, I think the original term for it, and you can see this in the upper left map on page two fifty five. But it's known as the um, the highway district because in some places it's only as wide as the highway. <laughs> um, but it's a an absolutely contorted district that grew out of very complicated origins. Right, that um, in at its origin in the nineteen sixties, uh, the Voting Rights Act and an amendment to it much later intended to create what are called majority-minority districts in order to help minorities elect representatives that would speak to their interests. So we don't often talk about that, but the origin of gerrymander um, in the modern era, right, has a lot to do with the desire to boost African-American representation, in this case in North Carolina. But it has an extremely... um, fraught history from that point forward, of course, because it can be used by the opposing party to pack your opposition into a particular district, right, and minimize their power out outside of that district. So it's this incredible marriage of geography and politics. And as I tried to reference in the late 20th century essay, I mean, with digital mapping techniques that we have now, gerrymandering has run amok even more than it had in the past, right? We're seeing... Be- uh, even more contorted districts because we have the power to, or I should say, politicians and parties have the power to manipulate this to a degree that we didn't have even a few decades earlier. Let's take a break. We're talking about uh, an interesting new book. It's called, out from University of Chicago Press, called A History of American 100 Maps. The author is Susan Schulten. She is professor of history at University of Denver. She's joined us for the hour. And uh, when we come back, we'll go immediately to the red states, blue states. This interesting. I didn't know. I thought this was a totally uh, modern phenomenon, but this is the 1880 presidential election. And there's, there's, a, <laughs> yes. there's a map, red states, blue states. I want to talk about the map as a weapon as well. Uh, in in San Francisco, and you have a temperance map. You titled this The Geography of Sin, and we'll get into some more modern maps as well as we review the history of America in maps. More following this break. 
Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Utah State University Extension. As the drought persists and we continue to cut back on lawn watering, it is critical to remember to care for landscape trees. Tips available at extension.usu.edu. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. The Moth is true stories told live without notes. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on Thursday, October 21st for the Moth main stage. Masks will be required and proof of vaccination or negative test results to enter. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. We've reached our last segment with Susan Scholten. She is professor of history at the University of Denver. She's author of a new book, A History of America in 100 Maps. And uh, she says that throughout its history, America has been defined through maps, whether made for military strategy or urban reform, to encourage settlement or investigate disease. Maps invest information with meaning by translating it into visual form. And those maps capture what people knew, what they thought they knew, what they hoped for, what they feared offering an unrivaled window into our past. Uh, so, Susan Schulten, I want to uh, treat this, I've referenced this a couple of times, red states, blue states. This is a representation of the returns of the 1880 presidential election. There's a twist. Uh, the parties are reversed in, in this map. Well, and yes, and another caveat, be careful not to connect the Republican and Democratic parties of 1880 with our own, because they are radically different in purpose and in representation and strength uh, geographically. But what you're looking at here is a map made just after the 1880 election between the Republican James Garfield and the Democrat Winfield Scott Hancock. And as you mentioned, what we are looking at is red states and blue states. Now, the reason I reproduce this map is that, to my knowledge, it is the earliest representation of electoral returns beyond the state level, beyond the electoral college level. So if you look at the map uh, at the inset in the lower part, you see a more traditional representation of the returns state by state. But what the Census Bureau has done here is to go a step further and to map the returns in counties or other electoral districts. And those would have absolutely been a revelation to people at the time, except those who were really, really invested in politics and knew this. That is to say, what you're seeing is generally the Republican strength in the North, which one would expect in the aftermath of the American Civil War, and the solidification of Democratic strength in the South. By the turn of the century, of course, we know the term the solid South, and that refers to the solid Democratic power in the South. So the Republican Party is blue, the Democratic Party is red. But the real payoff of this map is that once you get beyond the state returns to the main map, you see all kinds of um, variation. If you look at some of the southern states, you see really significant, not majority, but significant districts that are voting Republican. This within this quote-unquote solid South. You see it along the Mississippi, where there are heavy African-American populations. You see it in East Texas, uh, which had a strong Republican um, identification, even in the early aftermath of the American Civil War. And then in the North, you can see how Republican operatives might have been given pause. They may have won Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, but also within that, we see large swaths that are Democratic strongholds. And so what I like about this is that it is sort of a indication that the obsessive nature of our own um, political analysis right along geographical lines, and as you said, red states, blue states, the modern incarnation of that is in the 2000 election, and 
every year since or every two and four years since. But this has a longer history. And uh, the techniques that the head of the Census Bureau was using to try to uncover this and showcase showcase this for a wider audience really did have an impact. People were surprised to see that the story of their country was not sectional division, as you see in the Electoral College map, but much more geographic and political variation in the in the large-scale map. I want to talk about, uh, I was fascinated by your section on uh, map uh, used by reformers. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned uh, in passing uh, the famous map of London, poverty in London, right? Um, uh, t- tell me about, uh, maybe uh, take a, a map that uh, stands out to you in the reform movement. And then I want to get to uh, you know map, I guess we would say, misused. Uh, map as a weapon. Well, yeah, and I guess um, one can say that all of the reform uses of maps are weapons, right? That is to say they're, they're instruments. Uh, maybe that's a, a good use, uh, a good way to put it. Um, one example is um, the brilliantly colored map of Chicago's South Side, um, that you find on page 166-167. I, I can't imagine anybody has the book in front of them. <laughs> um, but what it is is a map made by the female reformers at Hull House who were helping or making an effort to assimilate the vast, diverse immigrant population on the south side of Chicago um, into uh, the larger American society. So what they thought they would do would was map it, and they mapped their income levels, and they mapped their national and ethic, ethnic identities. This is interesting to me because it's a, a turn toward information mapping that I referenced at the outset of the hour. This is really a 19th century phenomenon, right? That is to say, maps begin to be used from the middle of the 19th century forward, not just to represent the landscape, what we know, but also to organize what we can't see, the invisible. And in this case, what we're looking at is the human topography of, of Chicago, uh, whether it's Italian, Russian, Polish, Swiss, Scandinavian, Chinese, um, African-American. Uh, so, and this map is on that website, America 100 Maps. A map is a weapon. Tell me about this one. Yes, and this one is... Um, is really astonishing. Um, I've only reproduced a part of it in the book, but you can see the entire thing on the website because it's enormous, and I wanted people in the book to be able to see some of the detail. In the middle of the 1880s, the anti-Chinese sentiment or movement in the American West, particularly Northern California, was at its height. And that is to say that the panic around the Chinese population was um, really at its zenith. And this is right when the United States makes its first effort to federally regulate immigration, and that is with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. It's the first precedent we have of that. In the run-up to that, you see the origin of that panic in the city of San Francisco, where a Chinese uh, immigrant population had really developed, largely because of the enormous demands for labor on the Transcontinental Railroad. Once that's finished, there is a migration of many Chinese into San Francisco for commercial opportunity. Uh, That doesn't sit very well with the larger San Francisco population. And um, the city fathers organize uh, investigations of the Chinese population. They're very concerned about what they consider to be low levels of sanitation in that community and uh, that it's full of uh, opium-addicted, unclean people mostly men, because this is not a family community, but a a community of male immigrants. And so the map becomes a way for them to amplify that panic or that concern about the Chinese population. One thing I'm really struck by is how beautiful this map is. I mean, it's got an elaborately lettered cartouche. It's um, a, a reflection of great care and artistry in terms of the lithographic reproduction. But if you look closely, it's really got a nefarious purpose, and that is it identifies the Chinese um, and then goes one step further by not just identifying where the Chinese live, but also where they gamble, where their prostitutes are. You notice there's a separation between Chinese prostitution and white prostitution, which is very interesting, where they smoke opium and where they worship at what are called joss houses. So the map looks sort of indistinguishable 
from the Hull House map that I referenced just a minute ago. Now, of course, that one had a goal of integrating and assimilating the immigrants, helping them. This one, of course, has a very different purpose, and that is to regulate, if not eject, the Chinese population from the city. Yeah, it's it's, and this is an old thing, isn't it? Uh, beauty in 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 a nefarious purpose. And uh, we're we're out of time. That's a good place to end it. By the way, uh, the 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 end of the book, you have a, a map, a digital map of uh, having to do with uh, autonomous vehicles. So you do bring it up uh, to the very present. And uh, just in passing, we don't have time to mention this uh, to to discuss it. But uh, there's a there's a map by John Wesley Powell. Very prescient map. He's talking about drainages in the arid West and uh, and how water is going to be so important uh, to the West. The book is A History of America in 100 Maps. Susan Scholten, uh, the author, professor of history at University of Denver, has been with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate your interest. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Mark Twain famously joked that whiskey is for drinking, but water is for fighting over. This week, find out how the struggle for water between two Utah towns led to a lawsuit that resulted in nearly an entire LDS ward being disfellowshipped. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The small farming communities of Goshen and Mona sit at the base of Mount Nebo in the southern part of Utah Valley. In the late 1800s, a major conflict over water led those towns to court. At the time, most residents were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was wary of secular courts meddling in local affairs. For Goshen dwellers, however, Water was important enough that residents disobeyed church direction to resolve the dispute internally and took their case before a government court. Since the early 1870s, Goshen residents had maintained and regulated a local dam. When townsfolk in nearby Mona began using water upstream from Goshen's dam, Goshen farmers noticed immediately and feared for their livelihoods. Legal trouble soon followed. In preparation for a lawsuit, residents formed the Goshen Irrigation and Canal Company, which filed a complaint against the Mona Canal Company in 1877. LDS church leadership encouraged Goshen to dismiss the complaint, preferring to settle grievances through internal mediation. Avoiding the Gentile courts allowed church leaders to regulate water and keep the federal government from enforcing its will on Mormon communities. But Goshen chose to refile the complaint and the lawsuit proceeded. The Goshen Company argued that members of its community had continually used the creek, regularly maintained the Goshen Dam, and had prior rights to the water. The court sided with the Goshen Company, fined Mona, and forced them to relinquish their claim to the water supply. Although Goshen won the lawsuit, church leadership still held them accountable for their rebellion. The leaders of the Goshen Ward were disciplined and released from their church positions, and most ward members were disfellowshipped or excommunicated. Since they were no longer allowed to participate in church activities, a significant number of Goshen residents permanently left the faith community. The struggle for water in Utah's desert shows how difficult it was for the LDS church to maintain both secular and ecclesiastical authority over their growing communities. The desire to resolve conflict without government intervention was no match for the mounting concerns over water rights. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.